This is roughly on schedule. I mean, roughly, just to remind you how we think about it, we roughly want to be upstairs at 9-ish. We want to roughly kind of go 9.15, 9.20. We know it'll take a little time for you to get settled, but we'll go about 9.30 to 10.30. We'll try to get you out roughly on time, but, uh, you know, we'll just see what happens. Everybody got a handout? It says Christ in the Psalms at the top. No. <laughs> I thought you would have. I thought you would have been brave enough to uh, pick one. Everybody got one now. Have you got one? Mary, did you get one? Was there an extra? Okay, good. All right, good. Uh, you know, you always try to figure out how to set something up, and then, you know, the great joy in life is finding people who are way better than you are. It's just it's nice to sit at people's feet. So we'll start with an Orthodox bishop, okay? Bis bishop Dimitri of the Antiochian Orthodox Christian Archdiocese. That may sound strange to you, but... Um, I once asked a, a very, uh, a very uh, well, a spiritual father of mine, if you weren't Lutheran, what would you be? He said, uh, Antiochian Orthodox. And I thought, that's very odd. But the Antiochian Orthodox are uh, kind of a third branch of the Orthodox Church, as I understand it. Their bishop is in Jerusalem. They're, they're, uh, you know, would he be a metropolitan? What would he be? Uh, would be in, in he wouldn't be their bishop. I meant, well, I meant the head of their church is in Jerusalem. He'd be a metropolitan then. And they were um, came to America. They were a lot of working class people, especially from the Middle East, and especially came to the East uh, to work in the mines, to work in factories. And so they've flourished in America along with, as you know, Russian Orthodox folks and, and Greek Orthodox folks. So Antiochian Orthodox Church is pretty straight stuff. And you remember we had uh, Patrick Henry Reardon here, and we didn't get the title of the book, but he's got a book called Christ in the Psalms. It's actually Meditations. If you wanted a copy, could you bring it down, Pastor? If you just hold it up. If you wanted a copy, we could try to get you one. We aren't going to follow it directly, but, uh, you know, Reardon was here for a Saturday seminar, very well received. This would be his bishop. Uh, so we'll, we'll just have a read through this. Um, got it? The Psalms are like a golden thread through the beautiful garment of Orthodox worship. Well, that would be true for any worship. They form the core of Vespers, Matins, and other services of the daily office. So, as you remember, uh, the church has always kept some form of the hours. You see in Acts, uh, the disciples going up to the temple in the morning and in the evening, right? You saw sacrifices back when we did Leviticus. You saw sacrifices morning and evening uh, in the monasteries. They kept seven hours at times. So there's always been the hours. It just means you go to, you stop what you're doing and you go to pray at 9, at noon, at 3. Well, 6 and 9 and noon and 3. And even the hours are geared to the Lord's day. So um, at noon you may be hearing about Jesus hanging on the cross. At 3 you may be hearing about his death. Uh, the readings are keyed. But in the midst of that, as the church grew, everybody always knew the Psalms uh, because they're the prayer book of the Bible. Luther was Luther because he was an Old Testament man. He taught Hebrew, and he had learned the Psalms by heart uh, in Latin, of course, uh, as a monk. You, you said them through um, every day. So it just, and, and I guess partly what I would, I would urge on you is to use the Psalms to pray. Kenneth Corby, an old, uh, an, an old uh, kind of famous, you Valpo guys may know him. He taught at Valpo, and then he left Valpo being a professor to be uh, a pastor in Gary, Indiana, but quite a difference. And um, he would diagnose young pastors who would come to him and complain uh, or, or sort of say their troubles. He would say, are you praying the Psalms? And if they said no, he'd say, well, your troubles just aren't that bad yet then, right? So his diagnosis was, if you haven't made your way into the Psalms, really things aren't that bad. Now, many of you have had you know difficulties in your life. You've faced difficult situations. Usually... And so I'm prompting you now. Usually what happens is somebody is kind enough to push you toward the Psalms, to take that as your own prayer book, and to really take those in. And that's what we want to do this year. We want to take these as our own, but we have to, we have to move a little bit uh, from where we are maybe uh, to get there. So first is just the idea that you might just read a Psalm a day. You know, but you're going to see what the church does, but at least you might. There was in the West... Uh, the notion of the Psalms once a month and the scripture once a year. But you're going to see uh, here the Orthodox push even harder than that. So they found in the divine liturgy, marriage, and the other sacramental services of the church. They provided the inspiration for many of the prayers and hymns of Orthodox worship. 
The Psalms are so important that ancient tradition has decreed that the entire book of Psalms must be read every week during the daily offices. So as there's 150 Psalms, that means you're doing uh, you know, quite a few of them a day, maybe uh, six or eight at a pop. And that's what, that's what you would do. You would uh, you chant the Psalms. Did anybody see that? Jonathan Mueller gave me that brilliant margin comment that we led with about a month ago about the monks who stopped singing the Psalms after Vatican II. Did you see that? Wasn't that fascinating? The people get physically ill because they stop praying the Psalms. I mean, that is just, if you don't say your prayers, you know, you get the flu. It's as simple as that. Gainig, Gainig, one of his first pastoral conferences, I think it might have been his first one, suggested to the older pastors there that when someone's sick, you should give them communion because that tends to cure them. And that the old boy sort of scoffed at him. But it is there in the large catechism uh, that these spiritual things have physical effects because you're one big ball. So, you know, sometimes uh, the older guys need to give way. So, um, the Psalms are so important that ancient tradition has decreed that the entire book of Psalms must be read every week during the daily office. In addition to inspiring the public prayer of the church, the Psalms are an indispensable part of the private devotion of all who seek a closer relationship with God. So that's what we're hoping for. That's what we're hoping for with you. The Psalms are important because they express in divinely inspired language the innermost thoughts and even fears of humanity. When you read through them, you'll find the psalmist is regularly afraid. He's regularly threatened, you know, regularly surrounded by horrible things, man-made and natural. So you're, you're going to find, you know, you, when you, you found the psalms when you find your own voice in the psalms. When that's your prayer, when you can hear it, when you read it and you hear it in your own voice, it's not David's voice, it's not a choir master's voice. When it's your voice, then you found your way there. The Psalms express the wonder felt by those who gaze at the glory of God's creation. That's fun, isn't it? The earth proclaims your handiwork. They give words to intense sorrow for sin. When you don't know what to say, you say a psalm. That's why at church on Sunday or at a funeral, for example, when you can't pray, we pray for you. When you can't sing, we sing for you. When you can't say a psalm, we say a psalm for you. They profoundly express the horror of loneliness and alienation. No matter how deeply invaded by sentiments of despair, one finds these feelings echoed in the psalms themselves and more, and the more is so important finds them answered by the glorious message of the love of God. So however great your difficulty, uh, the love of God is bigger and better. Most important, however, the Psalms point toward the ultimate liberation of humanity from sin, death, and despair. That sounds just like Luther's catechism, doesn't it? Sin, despair, and other great shame and vice. From sin, death, despair through Jesus Christ, it is indeed only through Christ that we can understand the poetic language of the Psalms. So this is extraordinarily important. So you can just summarize it this way. Christ prayed the Psalms before you did. It's a little like when Kleinig said on Sunday, the Lord's Prayer was Jesus' personal prayer, and it was his personal prayer against the demonic, right? So they were, the Lord's Prayer was on his lips before it was on your lips, but when he gives it to you to pray, then you know it's utterly reliable. It's the same with the Psalms. The Psalms were on Jesus' lips before they were on your lips, because of that, they're utterly reliable. And it shows you the humanity of Christ. All the loneliness and alienation and despair and fear that you have, Christ had first. You remember it was on the cross that Christ, what? Said the Psalms, right? Okay, so it's all there for you. It's, and it's good news because it ends in hope and resurrection. From the first to the last Psalm, these ancient writings tell us in the language of prophecy that God will intervene through Christ to deliver us from the plight inflicted by our sins. We sin, Christ makes it better. It is significant, though here it is, that what, when he hung on the cross, our Lord quoted from the Psalms. And then just scooch down a little bit, about five lines from the top. He understands rightly that one cannot truly probe the deep meaning of the Psalms unless one understands them in light of the redemption brought by Christ. So there you go. Um, just think of it, think of it that way, and then we'll see what happens.
questions about any of that? Well, I'm, I, what I would encourage you to do is, you know, read a psalm in the morning, or if you have the energy, read a psalm in the morning and a psalm at night. You can read, um, you know, you can read through. You can read different kinds. There are sections of the psalms. I've read one psalm every day for probably the last 40 days because it just seems apropos to me, to, to, to where my life is right now. So, but my, my, um, my suggestion to you is if you don't do this on a regular basis, this might prompt you to do it, okay? The other thing we'd like to do is, you know, pa I think what Pastor Gating and I, and if we can get Pastor Nelson to do it too, that would be fun. Uh, we've got some that we just want to talk through, but if you have particular psalms that you'd like to talk through, we'd like to know what those are. We can work on them a bit. You can work on them a bit too, and it would be very helpful if you could say as we go, why those particular psalms are important to you. So, and we don't have to go in any particular order. I'm going to uh, start with one, but if I'm disciplined enough to leave a little time for Pastor Nelson or Pastor Gainig, uh, you know, he's going to fly into the hundreds, I think. So, <laughs> um, we don't have to go in any particular order. And if there are ones that you really like and you want to talk about with the group, that would be fantastic. So, just try to pick up, uh, let's just pick up number one, okay? I'm uh, I'm going to read from a, a a New English Bible. It's quirky, the New English Bible. If you need Bibles, there's some over here. You should grab one. Have one in front of you. We can help you out. Uh, the New English Bible is quirky, but it's 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 beautiful. And part of the reason I read it is just for the Psalms. In fact, for years I've been reading it. The only thing I read from it was the Psalms, just because it's so it's so beautiful. Um, you have to check the language sometimes, and it isn't a it isn't a it isn't a it was a translation that came out, you know, 40 years ago, but it hasn't survived quite as well as some, some other ones. But uh, it is glorious. So first thing I'll quibble with is the first word. You got Psalm 1 in front of you? I'll just read through. He says happy, but it's going to be blessed. But I'll read it to you. Happy is the man who does not take the wicked for his guide, nor walk in the road that sinners tread, nor take his seat among the scornful. The law of the Lord, capital letters, is his delight. The law, his meditation, night and day. He's like a tree planted beside a water course, which yields its fruit in season, and its leaf never withers. In all that he does, he prospers. Wicked men are not like this. They're like chaff driven by the wind. So when judgment comes, the wicked shall not stand firm, nor shall sinners stand in the assembly of the righteous. The Lord watches over the righteous, but the way of the wicked is doomed. Okay. So that's just a little quick read. So let's play with this just a little bit. Um, this My translation is happy, but of course that's not the best translation, <coughs> especially for Americans who are geared into a happiness culture. Um, your translation says blessed and, blessed, and it's better for that. Now, immediately, um, when you hear blessed, where have you heard that before? Or where have you heard that again would be a better place? The Beatitudes. Thank you very much. So in the Beatitudes, Jesus uh, begins with blessed. Can you find the Beatitudes? If you just put a finger in your book, why don't you spin to Matthew? should be around 6 or something like that. So immediately, Jesus picks up the same theme as, uh, as he's a pastor to his people, right? Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 5. Matthew 5. Jesus go, sees the crowd. He goes up the hill. Uh, he figures out what they need. He takes his seat. He gathers his disciples. So now remember, this is teaching for the church, just like Psalms is teaching for the church. When it says Jesus gathered his disciple, it means church is in session. Okay? And then, of course, you know these. Blessed are those who know their need of God. The kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are the sorrowful. They shall find consolation. Blessed are those of a gentle spirit. They'll have the, the earth for their possession. If you can begin to think about this as a commentary on the first psalm, there might be something going on there. We'll talk about that, why maybe in the end. Blessed are those who show mercy. Mercy shall be shown to them. Blessed are those whose hearts are pure. They shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. God calls them his sons. 
Blessed are those who suffer persecution for the cause of right. The kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are you when you suffer insults and persecution and every kind of calumny for my sake. Accept it with gladness and exultation, for you have a rich reward in heaven in the same way they persecuted the prophets before you. Isn't that great? So there is this way of blessing. And blessing is for some people, and it's not for other people. That becomes clear by the last verse. There's going to be a judgment someday, and uh, it's all right. Put them on speakerphone. We'll give them the joy. <laughs> it's all right. Don't worry. Um, so there is, there is a blessing. Now, if when you think about blessing, where's the first place you think about it? Where's the first place you know about blessing? Good, thank you. Okay, back up a little bit. Although baptism is a great answer because you can pull it all out of that. Where else? When you think about blessing, where else do you think about blessing? Church is good. Good, thanks very much. Where else? Think scripturally. Where else do you think, where else do you have blessing? Thank you, in creation, in creation, in Eden. And where else beyond that? Yes, that's right. That's right. Mary gets called blessed. Any place else? Babel, Abel, yes, the inclining little riff on his blood crying out. Fascinating. I never thought of that before. The blood speaks. Good. So there's a blessing that comes, and that was an honorable sacrifice. So blessing comes with sacrifice. Thank you very much. Anything else? Food gets blessed. Yes, it does. A table fellowship is a huge thing. So you always eat with people who are righteous. If you had a son or a daughter who um, was unrighteous, they actually didn't get to come to Passover. It's already elements of, of closed communion in the Old Testament. You didn't re- eat Passover with the unrighteous. wasn't anything about them. It's just they just didn't want to play by the way of Psalm 1. So food is one. Anything else? How about the promised land of Israel? Right? Come into the land of blessing. The exodus come. So look, you've got blessing at creation in Eden. You have blessing in the promised land. You have blessing uh, with, with, I'm sorry, I should have chronologically, blessing in Eden, blessing with Abel, sacrifice time, blessing in the promised land, blessing at the food points, uh, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Passover and the Holy Supper, blessing at baptism, blessing in the church. The single thing that ties all those together is Christ. He's present at all those places. So all your life is meant to be a little Christ. Okay, now how do you get there? Or how does the Lord do it to you? Um, We start with uh, three places and three postures. Okay, so blessed is the man who does not take the wicked for his guide. What does yours say? I think yours is probably stronger there. What's your first verse say? Blessed is the man who? Okay, that's fantastic. Okay, so first is... So you got three places. Um, you got walk. You got walking with the wicked. Go. What's your say next? Sitting. S- what is it? Standing. Sinners. Yeah. Good. Go ahead. Or sitting. And what's the last word they use? Mockers. Yes. Right. Scoffers is 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 true too. Scoffers. What in the world are they scoffing at? Good. And when you, when you curse the righteous, who do you curse? Yeah, that's right. So this is also, this is a very rare word um, that's used here, used in the Proverbs 14 times, and then it's also used one time um, in Isaiah, but it's a synonym for a fool. And you know that you're very careful with that word because to call somebody a fool is to damn them. Feinig actually gave a great riff on that too. And you kind of think about the number of things that he touched in the few hours he was here. It's quite remarkable to see you know, how a guy puts the whole world together. But to be a fool is to be anti-Christ. And that's why Jesus himself is so careful when he says to you, don't call your brother a fool, because when you do that, you, you might as well, you're damning him. To be a fool, the fool says in the imagination of his own heart, the song, the fool says in the imagination of his heart, there, what? There is no God, right? To be a fool is to be anti-Christ. 
to be foolish, to be anti-God. Okay? And you can see how the progression gets worse and worse. This is also just a little, uh, just a little sidebar on how temptation works. In your own life, this is how it works. You remember upstairs I said, when you smell temptation, there's two things you can do. You can cast it out as demonic, which means you look somebody in the eye and say, that is antichrist and we don't do that here. We're church. Not everybody has the strength for that. If you don't have the strength for that, there's only one other option, that you flee. So those are your two options. You can cast it out as antichrist. That's not what we do here. We're church. Or you can flee. Flee temptation. That's how the scriptures speak. Flee immorality. It should be 1 Corinthians 3-ish. Dick, see if you can find that right around 1 Corinthians 3, 14, 15, 16, 17. My Bible is kind of like I drive by sight. Do you drive by sight? <laughs> yeah. Unless I have the GPS, then I drive by Kirby, <laughs> uh, who has no faith in GPSs. <laughs> it's an evil technology. You'll end up in the lake. Don't try. Oh, okay. Well, maybe we do. Maybe we don't. Uh, but you see then, if you don't take one, if you don't cast it out as antichrist, or if you don't flee it, those are your two things. You can name it as a sin, or you can run as far from it, and then the person you're talking to is just sort of like, what just happened? They'll probably say, what just happened in either case? What just happened? Nobody's ever told me that before. Thank you very much. Let's hope that's how it goes. Or, whoa, I didn't know I was all alone. You actually, because if you, this is what happens. If you walk with it and talk about it, about wicked things, then what happens next? People presume you're an ally. Then you stand with it, and the conversation intensifies. Now you're not even distracted by how nice the trees are or what color the flowers are in the park. And pretty soon you're sitting down over a Starbucks, and then you're really having a go. And at the end of that, it turns into Antichrist, and you are finished. Because now you come in contact with the demonic. So Psalm 1 tells you how to be blessed and how to be unblessed. And you're going to see it goes from blessing. This is a very interesting little move. It goes from blessing to wisdom. And, of course, wisdom is one of the Old Testament names for Jesus. Wisdom with a big W uh, is an Old Testament name for Jesus. So that would be, um, that's the opposite here. So the move here, how do you go from blessing to wisdom? Or how do you remain blessed? Or if you want your life to be happy, at least in this sense, in a biblical sense, how do you do that? Well, the first step is to avoid things. You don't have to do anything. First, you avoid the things that are demonic. You avoid contact with evil. When you spot it, you either name it and exercise it, or you flee it, depending on your level of strength on any given day. But what you may not, cannot do is walk with it, stand with it, and sit with it. If you do, you're not strong enough, and ultimately you'll be corrupted. Make sense? This is no different than what you tell your kids about pornography, about drugs, about alcohol, about everything else. Go ahead. Hopefully there will be some psalms on justice before we finish. Because <laughs> the evil always seem to prosper. Thank you very much.
believe I do, but correct me if I'm not. Okay, good. Okay, so let's go slowly because there's about seven good questions in there, okay? So it's very well said. All right. You can read this in a way that makes it unattainable. We're gonna, I'm going to hold that for the last question, okay? I do not disagree with you that you live in the world. But, but w I wonder if you can see this, even in how you described it. So I'm not going to discourage you from living in the world. We're not suggesting a commune. We're not suggesting shunning, right? In a sense, you're right. You're light and salt in the world, okay? But there were days, especially in the last gospel for the last three or four weeks, Jesus has been trying to get a nap in for about four weeks in the gospel. Have you noticed that? And he keeps saying, I got to get some rest, right? So, so can you just, how about taking a lesson from Jesus, okay? There are times when Jesus flees. He's been trying to flee in the gospel for about four weeks. I mean, the guy last week, oh, for crying out loud, why, they're just right on top of me. And then he sees the crowd coming. Well, he hurries up and heals him, and he gets out of town, right? So I take your point. There are days when you can engage, okay? And there are days that you'll need to flee. So in your description, one of the things that I noticed is you sort of seem to put everything as 100% engagement. I got to be out there. I got to be doing this. I got to be seeing those people. That's a classic pastor's air. That's what kills pastors. Pastors can be the laziest people in the world, or they can die from a heart attack at the age of 30 from overwork. You're kind of describing the latter thing. I always got to be going. I always got to be on. If I don't do this, I won't prosper in the world, go straight to hell. Here's a great news for you and for me. You're not Jesus and neither am I. So what you need to do is order your life. You do as much of this as you have strength to do, and you learn that over time. And the rest of the time you do this. But the one thing that made me nervousness is he said, you sort of equated, it seemed to me, could be wrong, seemed to me that you were talking about this in the way of this. And I'll, you just need to be very careful about this. This, this is the opposite of this. Okay? And it doesn't, it, it has to do, the physical posture, in the Hebrew world, everything is tied together, okay? So I'm not saying never have a cup of coffee with somebody who is sinful or has difficulties or may even be a gossip or something like that. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is the minute that comes up, you have to stop it. And if you can't stop it, you have to flee it because otherwise it does become there. So you can't have physical posture in the sense of evil unless you're exercising demons. Make sense? So now you have to – here's the thing, though. It doesn't make sense, or you disagree. That's, it's important. All right. All right, here's the thing. If I come to you to gossip, you may say, sit down, let's chat this over. And I begin to spin it out. And you know that it's not true, or the person knows it's not true. You have to say, did you see that? Did you witness it? If you did, let's go to that person, and we'll sort it out right now. We'll so we, I, I won't believe that about another Christian. We'll go right now, and we will sort that out. Trying to get them to come to the Jesus side. Right. Everything That's in the light. Yeah, so you say, let's go. So, so you're having coffee with her, and they're talking bad about her. You say, well, if that's true about her, she's, she's liable to the fires of hell. If she actually is that person you're describing, she's probably going straight to hell. The two of us should go right now. and Right, right now. Leave the coffee where it is, even though it's three bucks a cup. And let's go, let's say that she's, her total value is greater than $6. So then we go see her, right? But if you sit and you go, oh, what a shame. And then we go on to the next person. And then we go on to the next person. And then we go on to the next person. What you have become is demonic. Okay? So now the question is, that's a very spiritually and physically and mentally engaging thing for you two to screw up the courage to go to her and say, did you do this? Did you say this? Did that really happen? Hardly anybody can do that, right? So you might be able to do one this month, and then you're going to be exhausted, and you better spend the rest of time fleeing it, okay? No, but, but you, you can't argue with this. If you argue with it, I'm not, I'm not saying you, maybe you can do two, you, but it's about determining your level of strength, not arguing with the paradigm. If you argue I with the paradigm, 
Okay. Fantastic, but you can only, okay, so now I'm just going to fall back to what I previously said, which is you have to distinguish this based on your ability and your strengths. You can either do this or you can do this, but you may not do this. That's as simple as it is. This is antichrist. This is, yes, this is contact with evil that makes you evil. Did you see the exorcist? Okay, I didn't because I don't want to see her. But there was a time when, in fact, I told you. I told you I have a friend. Right, so he came in contact with evil and it physically changed him. Okay, right? I will tell her someday. I don't want to scare her today. She seems so comfortable. All right? But do you see these are your, these are your options? You have this, this, but not this. If you do this, this is death. Last verse, this is death. Okay? What he's saying is stay in the way of Christ. Yes, he's saying don't become it. This is Christ. This is Christ. Yeah, you don't play with it. It was fascinating. I walked down here the other day, and there was a list of things that said, Great America, overnight camping, horseback riding, exorcism. <laughs> Youth group ideas for next year, brainstorming with the kids. Honest to God, this is what they had. I, I just said, what is that list? He's not a bit attention. That's just what the kids wanted to do. I'm like, okay, so great America, overnight camping, horseback riding, exorcism. And you think to yourself, what are you going to do with that, right? So, yeah, the first three you can play with. The last one is not playtime. There's a reason that the Vatican every summer invites all the exorcists from around the world for training and prayer. There's a reason for that, okay? So, so these are your options. These are your options. This is not your option. If you do this, it's going to go very badly for you, as we see in the last verse of the psalm. Go ahead. To flee your whole life would be unchristian. If you really believe that this is antichrist, then people who are engaged in this are in danger of hell. The most loving thing to do to a person in danger of hell is to give them a Christ word. Now, here's the thing. Engagement doesn't always mean, you know, start to finish. It may be as simple as this. Jesus doesn't talk that way about Lisa, and I won't talk that way about her either. Period. Okay? Or it might be as simple as, Let's just go see Lisa if she can tell us her story. You may not have to say another word. One of the things about gossip is it's never true. Anybody see the office last night? I'm not preaching Sunday. We're just going to run the office. <laughs> Did you see it? You should go home and watch it. Did anybody see it? Did nobody see it? Wasn't it? I was thinking, man, the whole time. I was just like, you have got to be kidding me. You should go, you should go home and watch the office from last night. I'm just thinking, this is the church. It was unbelievable. I, I thought that I, could, I couldn't believe it. So, have you, have you seen it? Did you see last night? Oh, my gosh. I am squirming. I was so uncomfortable watching it. Oh, gosh. It was just like, oh. So, anyway, the best you may be able to do, I, it's your homework assignment. Watch The Office for, for next I'm serious. Watch the, it's, it's your homework for next week. The best you may be able to do is say, let's go, and then you may just be quiet. Because what are you doing? You're giving her a chance for redemption. You're given a chance that you find out whether she's really in trouble. And you may re re need to refer up. You might need to refer up to your pastor. Your pastor may need to refer up to your bishop. Your bishop may, may need to refer up to an exorcist. There's always somebody you refer up to. You play to the level of your skills, and then you let somebody else play. Right? Go ahead. No, don't, well, don't have to be sorry. This is good. Tell you what. I don't feel like I'm doing all good because I feel like I just kind of slip under the door. 
Okay, well just, just hold that for a second, okay? Because you have about four questions wrapped together like that, which are all good questions that are going to get solved from verse 3 to 7. Rachel, go ahead. Atheists are easier. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I do. I, so here's the thing with, a, with an atheist. You've got no skin in the game with them, right? It's easy. Pagans are easy to talk. I, I love talking to pagans. It's great because you've got no expectation, right? No presupposition. And it's great. You can say stuff like, I'd like to be fully human. That was all last year on Friday, right? I'd like to be fully human. I mean, I gave um, a couple of Lane Sponge. They, they called in the van after school one day last year, just something we were doing here. And two of them don't go to church. And they said, um, why do you do that? Why do you go to church? I just said, because our family wants to be fully human. And then I gave them the thing from Bono. I sent it to both of them. They're both architects. They've both come to church in the last year, come regularly. Now, all they need to know is they want to be fully human. See, that's interesting to them. Another, another one, easy one, is mystery. Kleinig talks about this too, you know. But an easy thing is people are very interested in what's mysterious, you know, what's beyond them. Mm. What, so a pagan, you can say, very easy you can say to them, why are you a Christian? Because there's something bigger than me. And it's very interesting and very helpful, very blessed very happy. Wow, most people are miserable. So if you can say, Christ makes me very happy, boom, you got them. With Christians, the difficult thing with Christians, they've often engaged the Christian life, which has to do with carrying the cross, which then has to do with pain, which then disappoints them, right? Because we think prosper means I'm going to be rich, my husband's going to be great, my kids are going to go to bed on time and get up on time, and not leave their socks in the bathroom, right? And, and, and yeah, pay free. And, and it's the gospel for this Sunday, which is Jesus says to the, to the disciples, okay, uh, you know, hike up your skirts, we're going to the cross. And they, what do they do? They actually put distance between themselves and Jesus, and they argue about who's the greatest. So Christians are much harder to engage because, one, we have a piety about ourselves. We also don't expect it from other people. We also have had some disappointment in the Christian life, and somewhere in our heads we think there shouldn't be disappointment. We also have an expectation that it should happen right now. Christians go off the tracks in 14 different ways. All of us, me, you, we all. Because we wake up every morning, we put the sign of the cross on us, and for crying out loud, we'd just like the day to go well, wouldn't we? I'd just like to get to dinner without having a fist fight with anybody. Don't you? I mean, if I never had one more fight crossword with anybody, I mean, I, I'm ready to live in the woods. You know, I just don't have any interest in, in being at odds with anybody anytime about anything. But that's not really the Christian life either, because part of the Christian life is to engage. So Christians are more difficult. So here, so here's the definition. This is why we're doing it on the run, okay? So it's a call. Here's what it means. It, to, to prosper means, in all that he does, he prospers, which means he succeeds. He brings an issue to success. He shows this in his experience. So what does the word mean? Do this, and it will mimic itself in your life. So when we think of prospering, we think of cash. When the scripture thinks of prospering, or happiness, okay, good, oh, but, but to hold that for a second, because that's more difficult. When we think of prospering, we think of cash normally, right? Certainly not that, because Jesus didn't even have a house, didn't have no place to lay his head. Now, switch back. When we think of prospering, we think of being calm and of being happy. I just remind all of you that Jesus is on the way to the cross. There is no less calm or less happy place than being nailed to a cross. So the word means he prospers, which means... He brings it to success, which means he ends up where Jesus ends up, which means he ends up on the cross, which means take up your cross and follow me, which means, now get this, 
he lives as the church, which means he lives in confession and absolution. You got it? So prosper doesn't mean I look like, uh, wh why do the evil prosper? What does that mean? It means they get the best jobs. It means they get the most money. It means their kids get into the best schools. It means they drive a nice car. Why do the evil, but of course, they're making fun of that because that's not really what, what do you really want? What's really prosperity? Your spouse loves you and is faithful. Your kids go to church, right? Your friends deal with you honestly in law and doctrine, right? And you die, as the church says, a blessed death. The end of the psalm is you don't die a blessed death. So the problem is we don't have a proper notion of prospering. Um, I'm 14 minutes into Gaining's time, but he will be taking up his psalm next week. <laughs> <coughs> and he's a gracious man. And here's the thing, because I don't have to prepare for next week now, so I'm feeling good about this. This is a win-win-win for me all the way around. And you're going to get an advance assignment because he's going to tell you in advance. Now, I want to go all the way back to your question, and I want to tie it to your question, okay? Because look at the next, and, and this, is, this is the next thing. So, all right, so here's your first bit. And then... The Torah, law with a small l, means all the words of God, the revelation of God, the way, the words, the notions. On the word of the Lord, he meditates day and night. Interestingly, I, I, I'm actually going to, I was going to do a little more with this. Um, the word for uh, meditates <coughs> comes from the word for amusing. It gets, you know, we have in, in, in English, we have the word musing. He muses, kind of, kind of thinking about it, amusing. But it's also the root of the same word, amusing. So in a way, this means um, meditation. We always think, okay, I'll go to the monastery. I'll get in my cell. There won't be any pictures on the wall. There's no mattress, no pillow. They'll wake me up early. It's bread and water, which can sometimes happen in a cell. But what this actually means is he enjoys the word of the Lord. So it's not this hair shirt piety. This is, he enjoys waking up and reading his scriptures in the morning and the evening. So he enjoys the words of the Lord night and day. So you just ask yourself. Now, I know it's not always enjoyment, and it was very interesting, Pliny's comment about how the, lo the, the more you pray, the harder it gets. There's a range of reasons from that, from we just get physically tired to, we have expectations that are unjustified to a whole bunch of, to Satan challenges you more. The more you pray, the harder it gets. So I, I know there are natural things, and sometimes, you know, the way you learn to pray is you just pray. You say in the morning at, at 7 a.m., I'm going to pray. Part of the reason I rejoice in having the Eucharist every morning is my prayers are already settled for me every morning at 7.40 a.m., and it's maybe even more settled for me because if I don't come, I know there'll be, you know, 30 or 50 people going, where is he? So, I, you know, I have the press on me. But in days when I get up and I'd love to sleep an extra couple hours, even when we had a late meeting or something, I know I got to be here at 740. My prayers are automatic, but it's always good for me. It's always good for me. And in the same way in the evening. So it's amusing. It's wonderful. It's enjoyable. Okay. Now, here's partly the answer to your question. <coughs> He's like a tree planted by a watercourse, which yields its fruit in season and its leaf never withers in all that he does he prospers so what do you know about growing trees anybody know anything about growing trees you have to water them a lot at the beginning yeah what else do you know you know about trees what do you know you know about trees you know stuff sometimes you trim them back what else do you know yeah yes they do but i'll press you because you're the tree knowing person how long does it take? Um, how long does it take a tree to flower or fruit? Oh. And they bring their fruit in season, which means there's also an anti-season. So there are times when the fruit comes up and the leaves are there and everything is sunny and bright, and there are days when. There's no more fruit. Things are bare. You hunker down. You just try to survive. Always hopeful toward. Okay. But, but 10 minutes ago, okay, good. And that you can relate to that is brilliant because 10 minutes ago, um, you were looking for prosperity, I think, 
now. Perfect. Okay, so just hold that right there. You can choose A, always being frustrated because you want prosperity in the next two seconds, or B, enjoying the word of the Lord, knowing that because the Lord stands behind it, it'll do its work, and that it comes to you seasonally. So you grow a bit, and then you lose your leaves, and then you grow a bit more, and you lose your leaves, and you grow a bit more, and the fruit comes, and then you lose your leaves, and you grow a bit more, and the fruit's better the next year. And someday, have you lived in the same house for 10 or 20 years? You ever look up and remember where the trees used to be? Right? And now you look up, and what do you see? You ever realize how big the trees are around your house? I mean, you look up. I mean, it's, it's just, I was struck the other day. I was, I'm thinking, like, that tree has grown well, it took time to get there. So now, some of your, try to put some of your frustrations. See, a lot, of, a, lot about, a lot about Christian maturity is about time. So when you're, when you're 20, you may be able to do some of this, and when you're 30, you can do this differently. By the time you get, and really, I'll just say for older folks, you know who you are. Uh, we just need to get more out of you. I'll just be real honest. I mean, I've got to look, I'm trying not to, okay, I'm going to look like this. And I'm like, <laughs> <coughs> you older women in the congregation, we just got to get more out of you. We just got to get more out of you, okay? Because, because you've been through more seasons. And if you are 70 and you're acting like 20 spiritually, you're not helping people like me. You're not helping us. You're not helping the women around you. We just got to get more out of you, okay? If you're 50, you've got to be a lot better to people who are 25. And if you're 70, you've got to be good to everybody. <laughs> because we just need it. We just need it. That, this is not what the text says. The text says you grow up as by a water course. You grow up. And people then look up and they say, you know, where does my help come from? There it is. Why does it give you the natural images? Because things move on. They progress. They mature, right? Part of your frustration is the frustration of the Christian life. I don't know how long you've been a Christian. I can't remember. Were you born into Christianity or did you come late? Um, I was born in the Catholic Church. Yeah. I can't say anything bad about the Southern Baptists. Here, all, I, all I'm saying is, here, here's, here's the only reason for my question. You can be chronologically 50 and you can be theologically 12. I'm not, don't, I don't mean, yes, right. I don't mean you directly. See, the, the thing is, is you're good, except the only place where you get Torah is in the church. You don't get it by walking through the forest preserve. You get the Torah at the church. So I don't, I don't, and I don't mean this as a criticism. I'm just saying this to all of you. There are people who are chronologically 40 who are theologically 90. There are people who are chronologically 40 who are theologically 8. Okay. And part of what you, you need to do, you need to see that, and then you need to engage people at that level. The church goes bad when people who are chronologically 40 and theologically 8 take control because they don't have the resources to do the job. Okay? That's when things go bad. And that's what you have to watch out for. So in the church, this is all over the church. Move, this is all over the scriptures. Move from milk to meat. Grow up. Older women teach younger women how to do. Older men take like the steak fry tonight. Perfect example of how to grow up a young man to drink beer, poke fire, and eat steak. <laughs> it's tonight. You can still come. Of course he can. I responded for extras because I knew there'd be people <laughs> like Russell. Send them over, 7 o'clock to Steve Chester's house. I put times two or times three because I knew there would be a couple of people like, you know, and if they didn't buy the steak, then I'll get all in a huff. No, don't have to bring anything. Unless he wants to bring a friend who wants a free steak and a beer. See how easy the church is? We rejoice in the law of the Lord. So, um, are you sort of, you sort of, is this all kind of making sense now? Go ahead. Yeah, sure. What he didn't tell you, and just because he didn't have time, centu century goes to centurion, goes to how many? Hun hundred. 
So what he didn't tell you is the there's a there's a there's a very close thing, and we should probably have him back to talk about this about order in the church. It actually, it actually is also in James' reading for this week. It goes it goes to order how the Lord orders His church. Really interesting. Um, and all that I'm going to tell you now, I learned from Kleinig, and uh, you know I learned it long before away, but I heard him say it again. It was just brilliant. Um, century goes to a hundred. So. Um, in the old days, the Gauls, when they fought, if they had a hundred guys, they would put a hundred guys in a row, and then they'd rush and fight, right? It was kind of every man for himself. You've seen this in the movies. They all run down in a line, da, da, da. But what happens is, what happens is you, the line gets broken, right? And then it's every man for himself, and it's chaos. What the Romans figured out <coughs> is that with a hundred guys, it works way better one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. It works way better. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Works way better if you put them like this. Pretend they're X's. I can't draw the X's that fast, right? That was how the centurions lined up. Where do you think they put the centurions? They're fighting this direction. Where do you think they're, they're fighting the Gauls down here? Where do you think they put their centurions? And front, back, or middle? So in the middle, front, back, side, where do they put him? Just take a guess. Right here. He was the front guy. And they took their oldest guys. I know this is weird. This is what the Roman innovation was. They took their strongest, oldest guys, all the joy groupers, and they put them across the front like this. They put their youngest guys here. And then they raised their shields in the front like this, and fought between. And on the top, the guys, the second row, put them up like this so that everything was covered. It's called the tortoise, like a turtle going into battle. They were impregnable. So they put their oldest, brightest guys who wouldn't panic. You should be thinking, your pastors, your elders, your lay leaders. They put them here, and everybody from the new members class went here. <laughs> I'm, ser I'm dead serious. This is how they did it. So all their old guys are here, all their old guys are here, and all their newer Christians are here. And the newer the Christian, the more in the middle you are. So you never put, yeah, exactly, because they're the most inexperienced. They panic. They don't know what to do. Things go crazy. So why does, why does Paul talk about, you know, uh, so two things with Timothy. He says to Timothy, you're a young guy. Here's some things to learn. But he also says, don't ever let people disparage you because you're young. Because you're chronologically 30, but you're theologically 90, your spot's here. Paul's spot's here. Right? This is how the church is, this is the order of the church in scriptures. Now, when a church goes bad, it's because it doesn't order it that way. It's because you take your newest people and put them right here. The first thing goes, time it goes bad, what happens to them? Everything blows apart. The Gauls overrun you. Okay? And even <coughs> what would happen is, if these front guys were killed when they die, it was the responsibility of this guy right here to pull him back into the middle, and the next guy steps up. So you're always grooming leaders. This is how the church is supposed to work. This is what it means, paso, to order the church, hupatasso, put things in order. When you don't have this order in the church, your church always goes bad. So in James, listen for it in the, in the, in the epistle for this week. James lists all these horrible things that happens in a church, and then he said, it's because you're disordered. Because you haven't, you haven't set the church up the way the church is supposed to be set up. Very interesting. Okay? So this is how the church is supposed to work. Part of it is you need to tell who's mature and who's not. And that's that's partly comes with the vision. But at the end, the centurion decides who's in the front line. And then the guy's in the, he goes to the other guy and says, now who should be up front? Who has to go in the middle? That kind of answers your question, too. Um, we're getting close on, I want to be respectful of you, but, so blessed is the man who doesn't take <coughs> the wicked for his God, nor walk the road that sinners tread, nor take a seat among the scornful. The law, the words of the Lord, are his delight. He has some fun. The law, his meditation, day and night. He's like a tree planted beside a water course, in season and out of season. He always has enough water. You see, he always have the gifts. He always has the gifts. The gifts are always given. There's enough water. There's enough sunshine. But even though the gifts are there, he goes through seasons, right? And his leaf never withers. 
In all that he does, he prospers, which means he tends the seasons. He goes bare in the winter, but he's bigger the next spring. He flourishes in the summer. He goes bare again, but as he's bigger, he keeps going. So it's, a, it's sort of an undulating, but it goes uphill. Wicked men are not like this. They're like tra- chaff driven by the wind, disordered, all in a swirl, you know, getting in your eye, irritating you, but at the end of the day, you know, sort of cast away. Wicked men, they're like chaff driven by the wind. So when the judgment comes, you know, someday, fear you people who are yearning for justice, someday the Lord is coming back. When judgment comes, the wicked shall not be stand firm. They get swept away. Boom. Nor shall sinners stand in the assembly of the righteous. So there'll be a great sorting at the end. Um, strong trees and weak trees, right? <coughs> Live trees and dead trees. I just want to do one more thing because I want to I want to try to observe the 1030. Um, I, so w- when judgment comes, the wicked shall not stand, and nor shall sinners stand in the assembly. The Lord watches over the way of the righteous. And of course, righteous means blessed, the ones that the Lord makes righteous. But the way of the wicked is doomed. I just want to make one observation. Um, Greek and Hebrew, especially Greek, are, are particular languages. And you can have different ways of saying different things. This doesn't actually say man in the way of human. It doesn't use that word. It actually uses the specific, the man. And the church has always understood the man to be Christ. So in the first line, blessed is the man, Christ, who doesn't take the wicked for his guide, walk in the world. Blessed is the man. The man is like a tree. This is first about Christ and only second about you. It is um, in Christ that the Psalms find their fulfillment, uh, and Christ then becomes the key to understanding it. I'll let Pastor Gaining say more about that next time. I'm sure he's happy to do that. He's very good on that particular topic. But if you can understand, so even in the very first Psalm, it just doesn't, this isn't sort of general advice for how human beings should grow up. Now, it doesn't even mean me, man gender, versus you, woman gender. It's actually more particular than that. He uses the word for the man, as in Jesus is the man. Jesus is the man they're talking about. But, of course, now it's really good news for you because Jesus has already done it, and he gives it to you as a gift, right? So Jesus' gift is that you get to live over here. You get to live in blessing toward wisdom, and you don't have to live over here anymore, and that's how it works. The, the Christian life, then, is walking where Jesus walks and speaking as Jesus speaks. When we do that, when we stay in order, when we live in blessing, then the church works, then your own lives work, then everything works together. When we don't, then it's a free-for-all, it's disordered, you open yourself to all things demonic, and things fall apart. So, of course, um, the answer is day and night with the Word, having some fun with that, and then always um, at the Supper, at the Eucharist, and hearing the Word, remembering your baptism on Sunday. Got it? All that out of one psalm. Very strange, seven verses. Just a, and that's the first one. And that was always the one that sort of began began the week and really was the guide. Pastor Ganey, uh I apologize for actually, we don't know how this is going to work. I really thought I was going to go half an hour, so that didn't work. But I think what we'll do is you'll be free, and then I'll always have one prepared. So if we stop early, then we'd always have the next one ready. We'd be very willing to take... Uh, Suggestions from you. I, I th- what's the next one you're going to do? So next week we'll do 121. You might read that as a discipline every morning or every night. It's a nice one, isn't it? That's a good psalm. And I can tell you the next one I'm going to do is Psalm 27, which I've been reading uh, for many days in a row. So I'm going to do Psalm 27. That's going to be out in little ways. Um, I'm going to presume Pastor Gaining may take the whole hour next time, but if he doesn't, then. So we're going to do 121, then I'm going to do 27. So you can kind of look at those two. One of the things you can do is maybe look at them in different translations and wonder about why the different words work the way they do. Okay, think about very helpful discussion about what prosper means, about immediacy, about you know sitting in. So just just kind of look at those. And, and if you then it beyond that, if you have some suggestions, Psalms you really want to do or that are particularly important to you, we would love to take those up. We won't take them in any particular order. We are going to take some themes, though, at some point. Like, I really want to talk to you about the themes where people just pour out their anger on God. What does that mean? And really pour out curses on other people. What does that mean? 
you know, we need to talk and, and, and rejoice in blessing. We may have um, Pastor Gainey do Psalm 23 as a totally uh, sacramental psalm. So when you next time you read Psalm 23, ask yourself if beside the still waters isn't baptism and a table before my enemies isn't, um, isn't the Eucharist and anointing my head with oil isn't confirmation. Just ask yourself whether or not that isn't the sacraments going on in your church. If it's not, it's dangerously close. All right? All right, let's pray, and then you can play all you want. Thanks for coming back. We'll just keep going until we don't go. So, you know, have fun. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Thanks very much. See you next week.